Hello and welcome, dear listeners, to episode 27, part 2. For this episode, Charlotte and I interviewed the author Keith Gray. Where we left off, we were just about to hear Keith read from his book, Ostrich Boys. Let's jump right back in. <laughs> okay, maybe we could go on to your reading of the books to uh, maybe show people how fun it is to read. Right, okay, that's a challenge. <laughs> so... So to introduce the reading, it's from a book called Ostrich Boys. And Ostrich Boys deals with death and with loss. There's four best friends, Kenny, Sim, Blake and Ross. But Ross is dead, um, hit by a car, bang, gone from the world. And it really rocks Kenny, Sim and Blake that their best friend, a 15-year-old best friend, was there one second and then the next second, completely gone. They'll never see him ever, ever again. And they go to his funeral and they hate it. They hate their best friend's funeral. All these kids from school come to the funeral um, who don't even like Ross or never liked Ross. Some of them bullied Ross. What the hell are they doing there at the funeral? They're just trying to get out of school for an afternoon. Uh, the teachers are there. Uh, a, a vicar is wheeled on at the front to spout this nonsense and cliche about a boy he never met before. So Kenny, Sim and Blake, they're very upset that their best mate's funeral isn't the kind of funeral their best mate would have wanted. So they decide to do something about it and they steal him. <laughs> they steal their dead best friend and run across Britain, go start in uh, on the east coast of England and run all the way up into Scotland um, with their dead best friend. Um, he's been cremated. He's ash in, a, in an R, in an urn, sorry. Um, but along the way, there's lots of discussion about death, you know, uh, and about loss. And the book is about how, um, how you come to terms with loss at a young age and things like that. And it deals a little bit, it touches on uh, teenage suicide as well as young death. And, but it's got jokes in it, I promise. Um, and it's got jokes in it because of the way the three... Uh, teenage boys talk about death and how they come to terms with it so this is a very short section where Kenny and Sim are talking they're on a train and they're talking about just how rubbish death must be Kenny paused long enough between eating his crisps to ask what do you mean well it's not like there's ever a good time to die I suppose Sim said but you've got to admit he had kind of a crappy last week, didn't he? So you reckon if Ross had died while he was having a really good time, like if he'd still been with Nina or hadn't been beaten up by Munro, it would have been better? Sim shrugged his shoulders. I don't know, maybe. Sounds weird to me, Kenny said, to die when you're having a good time. Yeah, but at least you know you've had a good time. Ross probably died thinking everything was always going to be crap. So you should die when you're on holiday or something? How should I know? But maybe you should only die when you don't mind dying. Like after you've just passed all your exams, Kenny said. <laughs> Sim laughed. Yeah, or after you've just got a good look at Ross's sister's tits in the shower. Yeah, I'd die happy then. I thought you hated Ross's sister. Doesn't mean I don't want to see her tits. Okay, Kenny said. I'm only going to die on the day after I've just spent the last pound of the 18 million I'm going to win on the lotto. Exactly, Sim agreed. Why die when you're still losing? Die on a high, that's my new motto. It's what I'd be missing out on that would worry me, Kenny said. I'm telling you, it'd be just my luck if someone was going to invent a hover car on the day after I died. Sim said, a hover car? 
Yeah, don't you think they'll just be so cool when they've been invented? I'm definitely getting one. I've always wanted one. I really hope they get invented before I die or go blind and can't drive them or something. That's what's so bad about Ross dying, isn't it? There's so much he's going to miss out on. Like hover cars, Sim asked. Kenny nodded. Yeah, yeah, because he's probably already seen his sister's tits, hasn't he? Yeah, that was lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. But it's trying to access how do young people think about death and how do they cope with those huge, huge emotions of their best friend dying mm -hmm. and do it in a way that's not boring for the reader, uh -huh. either, if you see what I mean. So, so I, sorry, I often find that rude jokes work. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I found you, you kind of captured this, what it's like being a 15-year-old boy quite well. I remember many, like a school trip, when you're yeah. sitting on the bus and you're talking across the seats, across the <laughs> aisle to your friends, shouting. Yeah. Uh, this is what it, what it felt like, kind of, yeah. Not really talking about much, but still talking about everything. Yeah, oh, that's a really good way to put it. I like that. I'll have that as a quote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and... I see the, how, how what the like how big issues like death and loss and friendship kind of dominate this book. Yes, um, yeah, uh, it was a book that uh, it was very difficult to write because huge subjects, but trying to not make it miserable, not make it mm. miserable to write, and certainly not make it miserable to read. You know, I think you can get very. Um, very stuck when you're talking about uh, death and uh, suicide and loss and things like that. I think you can, you can really drag yourself down and it makes, and I think if you're miserable writing it, then mm. that comes off the page to the reader. But if you can still be honest about the subject, but sensitive about the subject, um, I think that's, that's what I was trying to do with the book. You know, um, I don't laugh at death. I laugh at the boys talking about mm. death, if that makes sense. Do you think we give, kids and teenagers too little credit for their way of dealing with big topics like this 100% absolutely because even now uh, sort of in my 40s uh, I still don't know you know my father died recently I still don't know how to deal with that you know really do it's such a huge thing <laughs> so we cope any way we can um, and um, you know teenagers use as much experience of life as they've got to cope with these huge issues um, and that's all we do as adults. We use our own life experience to cope with these issues. Just, you know, their lives haven't been as long as ours, so perhaps they've not experienced as much. Um, but I, I think that uh, we, we don't... We, partly a little bit like you were saying, we, we try to escape our teenage years because they're not always wonderful. They can be bloody awful sometimes. Mm. Uh, and as an adult, we, we get fed up with teenagers. We, we kind of, if anybody's to blame for anything that happens or goes wrong, it's always the youth of today that's the problem and blah, blah, blah. The, the easy scapegoats. Um, but I've got a lot of time and patience uh, for, for teenagers, for young people. Um, I like arguing with them. I find that when I argue as a middle-aged man, while I went, if we were going to discuss politics and I argue with you, I'm, all I'm doing is trying to change your mind. I'm, I'm already set in what I know. I'm already set in what I think. I've already decided long ago, you know, my politics and who I am, and where I stand. But as a teenager, when you argue with a teenager, the way a teenager argues is 
because they're still trying to sort that out in their head. So they sometimes ask fantastic questions because they're not set in stone yet mm. as people. And so they're still trying to discover what they believe. So they argue not to change your mind. They argue to discover what their own mind is. And, and so I find, you know, a good argument with a teenager can, can throw up all sorts of weird and wonderful things that you'd never thought about before. Um, so I've got a lot of time for that sort of that, that attitude that they have. That's a very philosophical standpoint because that's actually what philosophy tries to do. It doesn't try to to make you change your opinion. It tries to make you reflect on your opinion and really know why you think what you think. So I, I, I really like that. I, I mean, for me, that actually would be good arguments where the people in the argument wouldn't try to convince each other of their own opinions, but would say, okay, what do you think and why do you think that? Well, even if you think, we were talking about how teenagers read and uh, that it's a lot of educational reading and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. And if you think that we as adults, we, nine times out of ten, we read a book we want to read. Yeah. Um, we read a book, uh, for pleasure, I mean, you know, I'm not talking about university, but for pleasure, we read a book we want to read and we read a book that suits our opinion and suits our politics and suits True. our faith. Whereas young people at school, They're forced to read books mm -hmm. in lessons that may be a million miles to their own personal doctrine that they've grown up with so far. Mm -hmm. And they don't just have to read that book. They've got to study it. They've got to study it close enough to be able to pass an exam. And yet that book might actually fly in the face of everything that their parents brought them up to believe in so far. Mm -hmm. And so actually, you know, English literature at school, or sorry, I should say literature at school, you know, um, whether it's American, German, Japanese or whatever, but that particular lesson studying that school, it's a massive mind-melting, opening, <laughs> blowing lesson for many young people, mm -hmm. I think. Um, and for me, fiction, good fiction is philosophy and sociology <laughs> and history and politics and morals and <laughs> ethics. That's what good fiction is. It's, it's yeah. all of that mixed up in together. That's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's. I, I remember my own German classes in school, reading Austrian and German literature. And mm -hmm. in high school, I, I don't think I, I finished maybe two, three, or four of the books that we were actually supposed to read because I, I just I had zero connection to what was going on in the books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're reading books from the 18th and 19th century in German literature, as a teenager, they have sometimes very little to do with what you're your what, what your reality looks like uh, mm -hmm. and then you're also you've got a very hard time to get anything out of them when you're you don't really have a, like a way to, of approaching them at all yeah and I, I think it's um I, th I think maybe maybe I'm not saying the, the wrong books are taught maybe the wrong way of teaching them I mean I I had to go through all Shakespeare classes and things like that when I was growing up um But it was when I wanted to be a writer. So I was kind of going, oh, how does Shakespeare do that? Rather than, oh, this is an exciting play that means something to me as a you know 16-year-old growing up in England. Um, so I, I think that... Uh, I, I think that, one, we we cling to the classics far too much in whatever country, whatever is the, the national classics. We cling to that far too much. And then maybe we... we, we the, We don't tell the kids 
what the fiction's doing maybe mm. I, I don't know sorry I'm not a teacher so I, <laughs> I, you know I, I, I don't know how you'd access teenagers with a you know a, a Goethe or a Shakespeare mm. I don't know <laughs> I found it very nice of Shakespeare that he he strew some dirty jokes in every now and oh, then yeah, because that makes reading them really so much more fun jokes in there, yeah really fun jokes. also as a university student like <laughs> it's, just, it's just makes it so much better <laughs> but I kind of I wish I'd been taught all the um the conspiracy theory around did Shakespeare write them or not yeah that's really interesting yeah true. you know but no instead of just doing the play but tell me all the stuff that went around and who Shakespeare was and why some people believe it, it wasn't him and some people. I want that kind of thing yeah. around the book, as, and surely that'd make it a little bit more interesting mm, I agree. than mm. just the book and the words on the or the play and the words on the page. Mm. Maybe. I, don't know. Mm-hmm. I think I've got a bit of a tricky question that I don't. I haven't made my mind up myself. Uh, you portray the boys behaving quite w- as much as boys do. They talk rudely about women and I also remember myself doing that with my friends where do you think is the or what's the best way to go between portraying teenagers mostly boys and men as they are mostly you know not often behaving not quite as you should but also not making them I don't know completely unrelatable morals like saints or something and also you know not setting a bad example at the same time Oh, I don't care about setting a bad example. I don't care at all. I think that um, I've had uh, uh, a couple of my books have been banned from schools in the UK, uh, and a couple of times have been banned. It's it's oh you're teaching children how to swear. Mm-hmm. There's too much. Uh, I don't like the word bad. Oh, the, I don't like the phrase bad language. I don't think there's any such thing as bad language. I, I prefer to think of it as strong language. Mm. Uh, but there's too many. There's too much swearing in my books. You're teaching young people to swear. No, I'm fucking not. Uh, <laughs> not at all. I think that uh, young people learn to swear very well uh, at school themselves. Um, there's uh, there's an argument that I teach them to swear correctly <laughs> uh, because I think that if I wrote genuinely how a 15 or 16 year old boy talks there'd be a lot more swearing in the book and I purposely try to save my swear words for significant moments in the book you know when it's really needed so I'm maybe showing them how to swear correctly uh, how to use that language to the best of its effect because we need swear words we absolutely need swear words um, it's why it was invented um, we use it at specific times um, even for comic effect, as I tried to do earlier, um, you know, we, um, and I think that if if a book teaches a young person how to swear, if a young person's intelligent enough to pick swearing up from my book, then they're absolutely a hundred percent intelligent enough to pick up the themes of friendship and love and loyalty, uh, companionship. Um, that you know, why why is it that society claims? we only pick up the bad things from movies or video games or books. Why is it that we never pick up the good things that are in the book? You know, nobody gets in touch with me and says, um, oh, my son learned how to swear from your book, but they also <laughs> learned how to how to deal with, with loss with their best friend. You know, if they can, if the book is teaching one thing and it's surely it's teaching the other thing at the mm-hmm. same time. Um, I think that... Um, Nothing should be censored or banned 
from a book for young people. It's a personal opinion. Um, but I think that a, a good piece of fiction can be a safety net for a young person. Uh, for example, um, you know, if, if in the outside world, young people are, are having to deal with drug abuse, racism, homophobia, terrorism, um, and if that's dealt with in a book in a sensitive and accessible way, then perhaps the young person who's read that book has a little bit of armour, a little bit of a shield when they encounter that kind of thing in real life. Um, they've seen how fictional characters have dealt with it, that they've been involved with and that they've cared about in the reading of a book. And then when this thing hits them in real life, perhaps they've just got a little bit more of, a, of knowledge of how to deal with it. So I think, you know, books for young people can be incredibly... Um, stimulating and uplifting but also have sort of not I don't like the word lessons but things in between the lines you know these these gaining experience through through other people's lives you know we, we read books because we want to gain empathy with with people that aren't us um, a lot of the protests that I've heard about um, young people's fiction is that it seems to be that if a young person reads the wrong type of book, whatever that is, whether it's full of sex and drugs and rock and roll or whatever, but if a young people, if a young person reads the wrong type of book, then apparently that has a negative effect on society. Then that young person is possibly going to go off and disrupt society, and which makes you think that our prisons must be full of people that read banned books and the wrong type of book. And yet, to me, it seems like the opposite is true. Uh, I've never been to a book protest where, where there's, a, there's a murderer with a hand on his heart and tears in his eyes. He says, oh, it all started the day I read James and the Giant Peach by Roald Dahl. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so, so I think that books actually shouldn't be banned or censored because I think that if you read all sorts of fiction, you read all sorts of books... That, to me, is destroying ignorance and gaining knowledge and especially gaining empathy. And I just think the world needs a little bit more empathy these days. Pers personally speaking, that was a hugely personal thing. <laughs> uh, um, tweet to the podcast and argue with them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, I will gladly argue Sorry, with you. Sorry, that was a huge <laughs> rant there. I didn't mean to go into a huge rant. But that genuinely, I believe that the more... The more widespread fiction that we read as a as a person and that we allow ourselves to access, then we're, we're gaining empathy for. I, I I've never visited India, but I've read a couple of really great books set in India that just gives me a little bit of knowledge about the loves and the joys and the and the the the, the fears and the hates that somebody living in India mm -hmm. has. So I've I've just got that little bit of second hand knowledge, which mm. gives me a bit of empathy for somebody True. who's not me. And I think teenagers especially. When I was growing up, I, I didn't need lessons on how to swear. I didn't need lessons on how to be rude to women. I didn't need lessons on how to abuse my parents. Um, they were top of my list. That's why I got out of bed in the morning, you know, to, to hit those targets <laughs> because I was just a selfish teenager. I needed to be taught empathy, you know, to be taught empathy so that I, so I realised that um, being offensive to people who weren't me because they were a different sex, a different sexuality, a different um, race, 
whatever. Do you know what I mean? That's what I needed to learn as a teenager, and I got that from books. Mm. Going back to the swear words after this oh, long okay, run. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> you use uh, <laughs> that was not what my question was about <laughs> initially, but you use the swear word "Christ on a bike." Is that really something people say? <laughs> well, I was Did you make that up? Um, I no, I didn't make it up. It's it's um, it's gaining popularity, not because of my book. It's not, gain, but I heard a comedian use it, um, and I thought that's brilliant. Uh, and then two or three years later, I came to write the book, and I wanted a expletive, you know, an expression that was funny, but also, um, you know, was also a little bit. Um, offensive like swear words should be mm. uh, so funny offensive so Christ on a bike was the one that I, I used <laughs> I found it very amusing <laughs> oh that's good you see there's that 15 year old boy still inside you somewhere yeah, that, yeah. Is, yeah. <laughs> that's what it is I guess uh, that 15 year old boy will never leave me <laughs> yeah. I, I'm re- very interested in hearing your opinion on writer's block because I personally think that it doesn't exist and yeah I was wondering what do you think about that I believe in writer's block because I believe I've had it. Okay. But I think writer's block is a big, crushed up, messy, tangle, mashup, um, collision, explosion of lots and lots of other things, not just the ability to write. Mm. Um, I think I had writer's block um, for several reasons that weren't actually to do with putting words on a page. Um, and during the time, so uh, personally, um, when Ostrich Boys was published, uh, Ostrich, uh, Ostrich Boys was the, I think it was the 16th book I'd had published and it did really well for me. Um, I'd got some nice, I'd, I'd won a couple of book awards running up to this and I'd had some nice reviews, but Ostrich Boys for me, it didn't, you know, it's not famous book, but for me personally, it did great things for my career. And Ostrich Boys deals with a, quite a personal subject. I'm not any of the characters in the book mm-hmm. at all, but there's a lot of personal experience in Ostrich Boys. Mm-hmm. And I suddenly thought, wow, I've written this book that feels like a big book for me career-wise and personally, um, because there's a lot of me in there. What the hell do I write next? Mm-hmm. Because everything went into Ostrich Boys. Mm-hmm. Um, and people are coming up to me and saying, it's won this award, what are you doing next? And I was like, I don't know, I don't know. And there was a, there was a film, there was talk about film of it at one point, Never, obviously never happened, but there was talk of a film of Ostrich Boys at one point and things like this. And I thought, Christ, the next book has to be even better. Mm-hmm. And so for about a year, I was writing all sorts of things that never went anywhere so i didn't have writer's block i had writer's diarrhea maybe <laughs> but, but, but i was i couldn't finish anything i couldn't get anything done and then i became a dad and um i became a, a stay-at-home dad uh, my partner she uh, she has a she's got a proper job so she was out nine to five and i was doing most of the child care and that that sucked all of my creative energy in the way of uh, how do I amuse this this baby uh, who was growing very very quickly, um, and so there was a kind of there was the fear of writing, there was the sudden lack of ambition. I'd never dreamed that I'd win a book award, mm-hmm. or that a book would 
there'd be I'd have a telephone call conversation with a Hollywood producer telling me how much he liked my book. I never dreamed that had happened to me. So suddenly it's like, well, what else do I need to achieve? <laughs> and then there was also being a dad, which became another ambition. How do I become a good dad? Mm-hmm. And so writers, I didn't write properly for about four years, three okay. to four years. Uh, so it was writer's block, but it wasn't perhaps what we think of as sitting at a desk with a blank page, not being able to produce any kind of a word. So you see, I do believe in writer's block, but I believe it's, lo- it's, it's, it's your life around you that's stopping you from writing. Mm-hmm. It's not that you lack talent. It's not that you lack creativity. It's that bloody outside world <laughs> getting in on you. Mm-hmm. And so I found ways and methods to block the outside world out. Mm-hmm. I now always, always have music on when I write. I choose, I've got a very old fashioned CD player. I can get three CDs in it at once and it'll play <laughs> them back to back. And I'll spend a good a good half an hour in a morning deciding which CDs I'm going to listen to. <laughs> uh, you know, what have I got? Am I writing a car chase? I need some good, fast, you know, yeah, thrash metal music. Am I writing a love scene? Do you know what I mean? Who's the character I'm talking about? What kind of music would they listen to? So I wear headphones and I listen to music and that helps put me in a bit of a, a bubble away from the outside world. I totally get that. Yeah. I totally do. Um, I mean, I live in a shared flat and sometimes... People just knock on the door and ask me if I want coffee, or I don't know if I, if if they, if I want to put some of my laundry into theirs and stuff like that, which is actually quite nice. But still, when you're writing and you have all these interruptions all the time, it's really really frustrating sometimes. And I I uh, there was an interview with J.K. Rowling and where she said that she started for exactly these reasons. She started to go to a hotel and write the Harry Potters there because at home there were her children, her husband, life, everything like the things in the house that had to be taken care of and it was too much. And then she just said, okay, I need my little players. I think it is. It's good to have a space. You know, Roald Dahl had a shed. Philip Pullman has a shed at the bottom of the garden Mm -hmm. um, so they feel they can escape normal life and go to their writing life. Um, I know a few authors that Stephen King has an office He actually travels to an office to work. You know, Nick Hornby, I don't know if you know the author, Nick Hornby wrote High Fidelity and things like that. About a boy. Yeah, Yeah. about a boy. Um, (laughs) He he has an office as well. So I think it's it's finding that space where you stop being you and you become the writer. Yeah, Um, I get that. Which, uh, but I write, and also I write every day. Uh, I write at least... I write a minimum of 500 words every day. Really? Wow. Because I'm, I'm impressed. I, well, too. well, one thing, it is my job. And if, yeah. I, if I don't produce the next book, I don't get paid. So True. for me, it, it's a job. But also, I'm terrified that if I, I've, I've got, I'm not a superstitious person, but now I'm terrified if I don't write 500 words a day, uh, maybe I won't write 500 words the next day. <laughs> uh, you know, I'll, I'll do 1,000 I'll do tomorrow. And then it'll be, oh, I'll do 1,500 the day after. And then it's, oh, my God, I'm meant to write 30,000 words today <laughs> to catch up. Um, so I write every, whether it's my birthday, whether it's Christmas, whether I'm on holiday, mm. on a beach. Um, it causes problems with the family. Mm, I <laughs> um, but I, I write at least 500 words a day. It, it does not have to be a good 500 words. It doesn't have to be a polished 500 words. It doesn't have to be about the book that I'm currently mm-hmm. on contract. Mm-hmm. 
as long as I write 500 words a day, whether it's just a journal entry or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the fabulous things about uh, Universe is that it's challenging me to write different 500 <laughs> words a day that I hadn't thought of writing before. Um, so, so yeah, I, I do believe in writing every single day of my life. But that's a, a panic. I worry I'm going to get hit by a car, be in hospital, where, who's going to write my 500 words a day? <laughs> I'm in hospital in a coma. What's going to happen? <laughs> um, but that's a, that's a real deep-seated worry about writer's block. Mm-hmm. But that's how I got over this okay. writer's block. Interesting. Lock myself away. Uh-huh. Be selfish. This is my time to write. Yeah. I'm going to be a writer. I want to be a writer. Uh-huh. So I have to write. And, you know, you're just going to have to deal with that family, friends. You'll just have to deal that I'm going to be for an hour, hour and a half to write, Mm -hmm. you know, 500 words, hour, hour and a half. This is it. Uh, When I'm writing a book, of course, I need to produce a couple of thousand words a day while I'm deep into a book. Mm -hmm. But at least 500 words a day to to keep going, to keep Mm -hmm. going. Interesting. Thank you for that. Yeah, yeah. It's a good... I, I like the, the insight of your life uh, keeping you from... from well, do you know what? You, you don't become famous for books you never wrote. <laughs> True. <laughs> and I've never met a successful person, whether it's business or whether it's art or whether it's sport or whatever. I've never met a successful person who's not tired. I just haven't. Do you know True. what I mean? Yeah, it's hard, it, it, it hard work, yeah. It's true. And, and yeah, there's uh, just... Uh, there's a. One of my favourite singers, a guy called Frank Turner. Um, oh, yeah. You know, I know Frank, Frank Turner. Yeah, yeah, I've seen him fantastic. in concert. Yeah, he's brilliant, isn't he? Really good. And there's one of his songs that says, you'll never be remembered for something you never do. Uh-huh. And so I've got some fabulous books in my head, but nobody's going to remember me for the books I keep in my head. I've got to get them down on paper. Mm-hmm. And that's going to take me 500 words a day, at least. <laughs> so That's an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah. You seem to put a big focus on, on community in writing or in the writer's scene. I, you're kind of starting new th- uh, things here in Vienna. What is it exactly is it that you were doing? What were you missing in Vienna? And why do you think this is so important? Um, I do like community. Um, and I do like meeting people and spending time with people who, who enjoy the same things as me, which I don't think is particularly unusual. <laughs> Um, but I was living, I lived in Edinburgh for 20 years and Edinburgh is a f- fantastic city for writers. The biggest book festival in the world happens in Edinburgh once a year in August. Please, if you get a chance, go. It'll blow your mind. It's fantastic. What, what is it called? It's called the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Okay. Uh, it happens every August. And um, it's, it's, that's why I moved up to live in Edinburgh, just mm-hmm. to be part of that. Edinburgh is also a, Unis- um, a UNESCO city of literature. Wow, um, I did not know that. Yeah, they were the very first UNESCO City of Literature, so there's all sorts of events happening. They, there's an organisation called the Scottish Book Trust, based in Edinburgh, who, anything to do with books, whether it's for kids or adults, Scottish Book Trust have a hand in it. And so there's always book launches happening, there's always uh, writers hanging around who come to visit Scottish Book Trust and uh, promote their work. There's also the Scottish Storytelling Centre, so it's not books, but it's people standing up and telling stories. So there's a, you, I, I often say in Edinburgh, you cannot walk down the street without bumping into an, edit, into an author who's more famous than you are. <laughs> um, and of course, J.K. Rowling, you know, yeah. spends a lot of her time in Edinburgh. Um, so it is a, a hub. Edinburgh is a hub for writers. Um, 
and it's a lonely job writing you are by yourself you know you can sit in a cafe but still it's just you talking to made up people on the page um doing it as a full-time job i don't travel to work you know i don't um, meet other commuters on the way to work mm-hmm. um i don't uh have colleagues that i work with you know my office parties are rubbish it's just me <laughs> all by myself um but i'm a fairly social person and i like talking about books and reading and writing um, and so coming here to Vienna and suddenly being a full-time writer in a city that I didn't know, in a, with a language that I'm struggling to learn to speak, I am going to classes to learn German at the moment, um, I just wanted to meet as many people as possible who enjoyed what I enjoy. And going back to, going back to what I said about um, you're never going to be remembered for a book you didn't write, well, there was nobody was going to come knocking on my apartment door and say, oh, are you Keith? Do you write? <laughs> hey, let's have a beer together. <laughs> I had to get out there and make things happen. Um, and so I'm very, very grateful that I have uh, I was introduced to Universe, um, <laughs> this covered Universe. Um, I, I, I genuinely, I sing the praises of Universe everywhere. I think it's fantastic. Um, and I, I created a couple of writing groups um, one specifically aimed at, at young writers. It's called Vienna uh, Young Readers. Sorry, it's called Vienna Writers for Young Readers. Um, you'll find us on Meetup, and also Sunday Writers Club, which is just to get a group of like-minded writers together who sit round a table and spend an hour on a Sunday morning writing, um, getting your five hundred words down. Because you come along to that and either you write or you look very stupid because everybody else is writing. So it's trying to guilt you into writing for an hour. Um, And then there's the open mic night that Sunday Writers Club run as well, where you can get up on stage and read your thing. So for me, it's all about books and writing and fiction and reading and enjoying the written word and the spoken word. Um, And it's about getting me away. Very, very selfishly, it's about getting me away from the desk so that I meet interesting people that I meet at Universe like you two and mm. meet, meet at Open Mic um, and meet at Sunday Rides. It's just about meeting interesting people because I think it is very, very lonely being a writer. And if all you do is sit in your attic bedroom writing miserable poems and uh, terrible stories and heartbreaking songs about your life, you you're not somebody that I personally want to read or listen to because I like my writers to have experience. So you've got to get out as a writer as well. You've got to put the hours in writing, but you've got to go out there and find something to write about. And life and experience gives you that thing to write about. Uh, So my next book, it'll be probably like, um, you know, some kind of werewolf story set underneath the Highlander pub in with a load of sort of <laughs> fantastic writers getting mauled to death or something like that, you know, because it's what I've been experiencing recently. <laughs> no, but for real, what will your next uh, book be, if you can tell? Well, the, ne- the book that I'm literally just finishing at the moment, I read a small section of it at Universe, um, but it's I'm describing it as uh, Die Hard with Werewolves. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so hopefully um, I should have it finished in the next couple of weeks and it'll take about a year for it to be published. Uh-huh. Um, so, um, and I think I need to put in the acknowledgements Universe people because they gave me some good advice when <laughs> I read the piece out. Oh, wonderful. Cool. Looking forward to that. Yeah, me too. 
Uh, one last question, maybe. Do you have any advice for young people who are writing and who want to get published? Uh, write the kind of story you want to read. Um, as a young person, a school-age young person, you kind of feel obliged to write the kind of stories that your parents would be proud of or write the kind of stories that get you a high grade in your exam or whatever. But I, I firmly believe that if that you should be writing the kind of stories you want to read. So if you enjoy horror, write horror. If you enjoy sci-fi, write sci-fi. If you write the kind of story that you want to read, it's so much easier and you want to get to the end because you want to find out what happens next <laughs> as well. Um, so that'd be the first thing. Write the kind of thing you want to read. Never take no for an answer. As I said, I, I've, I think I've got nearly a hundred rejection letters over the years, which for some, there's some writers have got many, many more. Um, never take no for an answer. It's your story. It's your poem. You know how you want it to sound. It's great to take advice, but deep down it's yours. Um, so never take no for an answer. Um, keep sending it out. And, and the only other advice is the very, very boring advice I'm, I'm afraid of. Try to write as much as possible. Y you know, that's what writers do. Mm -hmm. You can't be a footballer if you don't kick a ball. Um, you can't be a writer if you don't write. So the boring advice is, yeah, write every day if you can. Okay, okay that's that's really good advice, and I, I think I'll I'll take it to heart. When I leave, I <laughs> yeah, scribbling as immediately. I go yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, then. Uh, oh yeah, maybe. Do you do you have any places on the internet for people where where people can find you? Are you on Twitter, on Instagram? Or? I'm not. I'm not on Twitter or Instagram. Um, uh, you would find if uh, if you Google Keith Gray, things will pop up about me. Um, that there's no dedicated space to go to. Um, but if you want to find the books, you'll find them um, through Amazon, Amazon UK. Um, If you want to find interviews with me, things will, if you just Google Keith Gray, things will pop up. There's a big, massive, good-looking American football player called Keith Gray. That's not me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, I'm the writer one. Uh, but yeah, I, I need a dedicated space. You're making me feel guilty now. I need a dedicated space for people to come to, but I don't have one as, as of now. Okay. But I guess people can always come by to our universe meetings on Wednesday and check out Keith. Meet the famous writer, Keith Gray. Yeah, I'm there and I'm, I'm there two or three times a month, I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, have you started working on the vlog again? I haven't. Are you going to publish anything soon? I don't know. What are you working on? I don't know. <laughs> okay. Education <laughs> <laughs> part of one. Oh, okay. My, my, uh, sentence that i always say okay yeah you can as always you can find me on twitter at leo engelmeyer oh and also i also managed the the um the universe podcast twitter oh i will say sorry yeah um sunday writers club has a website oh wonderful so if you're in vienna and you're interested in writing sunday writers club has a website and a facebook page i just remembered thank you good sorry good. yeah go and check that out i'm sure it's wonderful i've never managed because uh on sundays i'm either busy with uni or hungover so sadly never been there we're used to hungover right yeah. <laughs> turning up late it's fine. <laughs> thank you very much for being thank you here. thank you so much uh for talking to me it was a pleasure thanks for being here yeah <clears throat> this was episode 27 of the universe podcast
If you enjoyed it and would like to hear more of us, make sure to subscribe to the Universe Podcast wherever you are listening to it. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review to tell us what you think and help other people find the podcast. And tell all your friends about it. Comments? Questions? You can reach us on Twitter, we're at PodUniverse, on Facebook, or on our email address, podcast at universe.univ.org. This podcast was edited and hosted by Leonhard Engelmeyer. The co-host was Charlotte Zerz. Our guest on this episode was the famous Keith Gray. And on the editorial board were also me and Charlotte Zerz. I hope you visit this planet in the universe again. In the meantime, stay safe in space. Thank you for listening.